0: The text for our sermon this morning is First Samuel 6, we'll read verses 17 through 21. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Eshkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the five golden rats, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel, on which they set the ark of the Lord, which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. Then he struck the men of Beth Shemesh, because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,000 and 70 men of the people. And the people lamented, because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. And the Ben of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God, and to whom shall it go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of kirjath Jirim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. This time we'll call the kids to the front for their children's sermon. Well, the story that we just read has three parts. First, it tells us about the gifts of gold that the Philistines sent back with the Ark of God when they returned it to Israel. Secondly, it tells us about a very foolish and evil thing that some of the people of Israel did. And finally, it tells us how they reacted to God's punishment. The Philistines, who were the enemies of God's church, had stolen the Holy Ark of the Lord, that special golden box that had the Ten Commandments inside. And because of this, God punished the Philistines. You remember that God gave them boils, big round sores all over their bodies, and he sent mice that ate their food and made them sick. And many people died because of this. So the Philistines decided to send God's ark back to Israel. They put it on a cart pulled by two cows. And the cows were led by God because no man led those cows, but they walked right down the road to a town in Israel called Beth Shemesh. Can you say that, Beth Shemesh? No, he just says no. (laughs) That's the way a lot of Bible names are, right? When the ark first came to Beth Shemesh, God's true children came out with great joy to meet it. And they broke the card into pieces and built a fire. And on that fire, they offered the two cows as a sacrifice to God. It was a way to say thank you because now they could worship God again. And, and serve him the way that his word teaches. But right after this church service was done, some men in Beth Shemesh did something very foolish and very evil. They opened up God's ark to look inside. And when they did, God killed them. Now, why was this foolish and evil? God had very, very strictly commanded that no one but the priest could open the ark. There were special ministers of the church called Levites who were the only ones ever allowed to carry the ark, but even they were not allowed to look inside. Now you may ask, why? First of all, why doesn't matter? God commanded it. And so we must obey what God commands. We must never argue about God's Word and try to decide which rules we think make sense and then obey only those. Secondly, the ark was a picture to God's people of the death and blood of Jesus, which means that the ark was very holy, and things that are holy must be treated in a special way. Because these disrespectful people died, the people in Beth Shemesh were afraid And decided to send the ark to another city in Israel. Now does that sound familiar? Because it should. That is exactly what the Philistines did when God punished them. Now our story teaches us three important lessons. First, God punishes evil men because they refuse to know him as God. The Philistines worshipped Dagon, a statue that couldn't save himself from getting knocked on his face before the Ark of God and couldn't save his people from getting boils and losing their food to mice. They knew, the Philistines knew, that that God was real and Dagon wasn't, but they still wanted to worship Dagon and ignore God. Secondly, God punishes men who do not give him the respect that he deserves. When we ignore going to church, or we daydream in church instead of paying attention, when we make fun of God's holy things as if they are not important, we're doing the same foolish and evil thing that the people in Beth Shemesh did when they opened the Ark of God. Because God is holy. God's house is holy. God's Bible is holy. God's day is holy. And we must always treat these things with respect. And thirdly, people who don't love God try to get away from him and his worship. The people of Beth Shemesh would rather send the ark away than to tell God that they were sorry for being so disrespectful of him and his worship. You should be very afraid when your heart would rather do anything else on the Lord's day than come to church and worship God and sing and pray and hear his word. That was the sin of the people of Beth Shemesh. They would rather live without God in His ark than be sorry for their sins and worship Him. I will pray and then you can return to your seats. God who did of old speak unto the fathers by the prophets and has spoken unto us in these last days by Thy Son, speak to us now through Thy holy word. Make our hearts to be as good and prepared soil for the good seed of Thy kingdom Teach us to know thy will and to do it in all things. May the Holy Spirit be with us now as a spirit of light and life. And may Christ be glorified in the preaching of his gospel this day. May grace and peace be multiplied unto us all through the knowledge of thee and and Jesus our Lord. For his name's sake. Amen. The human heart has a mysterious capacity to forget God. Incredible. If it it weren't so universal, it would hardly be believable. Men can experience amazing providences, things that perhaps swell their hearts with gratitude to God, but the second the impressions of the events have passed, all memory of God is gone. Perhaps people have experienced... Things that you think could never be erased from their memories. Displays of God's mercy and justice that you would assume would be etched in their consciences forever. And yet these people can behave as if no such things ever happened. Israel at Mount Sinai is a good example. They had seen the mountain covered with clouds, convulsing with thunder and lightning. While God, whose presence was declared by these things declared to them his holy law. And yet, the proverbial ink isn't even dry, and they had relapsed into the basest and foulest idolatry. Their lust for a visible God came rushing in as if they had not witnessed what they had undoubtedly witnessed. Our text is another prime example. The Israelites had been left without God in the world for a full seven months. No doubt they had heard of the heavy hand of the Lord against the Philistines. They had mourned the loss of the tabernacle worship and sacrifice. The high priest could pour no blood on the mercy seat, all the while that the ark was among the Philistines. The church had been reduced to a virtual atheism, not because they had ceased to believe in God, but because God had forsaken them. And yet, the ark is barely back among them, The sacrificial fires are barely burnt out in Joshua's field, and the men of Beth Shemesh have broken God's most sacred ordinances regarding his ark. So our outline this morning is as follows. Number one, judgment upon the heathen. Number two, judgment upon apostates. And number three, we'll call reform instead of repentance. So our first point, judgment upon the heathen. Now before we go any further... I'm going to handle an objection that is frequently raised against verse 19 so that we don't get sidetracked by it later. It is a known fact that the town of Beth Shemesh did not have 50,000 people living in it at the time that these events transpired. A reasonable estimate would be 1,500 to 2,000. Liberal scholars and sadly far too many conservative scholars simply assert or accept the assertion that the text is corrupt here. Now, a true Bible believer can never accept such a premise. What good is it for God to give us His inspired Word if He fails to protect the text from being corrupted? These numbers are literally in the Hebrew text, and so we must deal with them honestly. We may not say the text is mistaken here or there is a scribal error here because the second we open that door, we undermine the authority of all Scripture, If God has failed to protect 1 Samuel 6.19 from scribal error or corruption, who's to say He hasn't failed to protect John 3.16, Psalm 23, or your favorite verse, from being corrupted? So how do we handle this issue? We must never approach Scripture from a position of skepticism or unbelief. We must always approach it with faith. And uncompromising commitment to the veracity of every single letter of the text. Scripture is the Word of God, not the Word of man. The Bible is not the product of the church. It is given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so we must never presume to question it or trifle with its words as if it were merely a human document of merely human origin. The Hebrew text literally has it like this. 70 men, 50,000 men. The numbers separated. Numbers 70 and 50,000. And so the way to interpret this that makes the most sense of the context and gives due respect to Scripture as infallible and inerrant is to say that the numbers represent the total that God slew. 70 Israelites in Beth Shemesh and 50,000 Philistines. The text isn't giving us a total of 50,070 in Beth Shemesh. It is giving us two groups. Now, our last two sermons have focused on the fact that God was judging the heathen Philistines. He let them defeat Israel, desecrate the temple or the tabernacle, capture the Ark of the Covenant in order to judge them. In Exodus 9, God says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up. That I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. God placed that man on the throne of Egypt in order to destroy him as an example of how God will judge those who oppose him and his church. That same principle applies here to our text as well. The Philistine victory at Ebenezer was orchestrated by God in order to cast them down to destruction. Last week, we read Colossians 2.15, which says that Christ publicly humiliated His foes by means of His cross. He set the Sanhedrin and the Roman rulers up in order to cast them down. He openly displayed what He does to all those who refuse to bow the knee to His rule. You cannot fight God and win. But there is also an application of this truth to the church, and that is our second point. Judgment upon apostates. The position that I've taken with regard to the number of those who died in Beth Shemesh is not intended to soften the impact of the event. There's no way to soften what happened here. I can guarantee you if 70 people simultaneously died and tripped, it would be the talk of the town for years to come. 70, years, 70 dead men is no laughing matter. So, let's look at the more important issue. The judgment of God upon these irreverent, prying men of Beth Shemesh. In our first point, we saw God judging unbelievers, but here the judgment takes place in the household of God. We have to set the stage. It seems severe and shocking to us at first glance, but we should remember what happened in Israel a short seven months earlier. Because of the irreverence of the ministers of the church... Israel was defeated in battle, the priests were all slaughtered, Shiloh was devastated, and the ark was captured. Shouldn't that have sobered these people up? Why would they behave so rashly concerning what rash behavior got them seven months ago? And this is what I was talking about at the beginning of the sermon. You can easily imagine that the events of Shiloh had a a deep impression on the Israelites. Common sense would say that they would never forget this. And yet, in seven short months, they'd completely acclimated to being practical atheists. The offspring of the men who crossed the Red Sea had grown completely accustomed to not having the ark. It seems impossible, but I dare say, that communities that have lost a church get over the loss a lot quicker than it's comfortable to think about. In no time at all, it's if the place never existed. The building gets torn down or it gets converted into a house or a restaurant. And before you know it, no one remembers ever worshiping God in it. And so I want to make a couple of points about the severity of this judgment. First of all, Scripture depicts God as always using more severe judgment on apostates than on ignorant heathen. Because professing Christians are sinning against more light and knowledge. And more importantly, their sins concern God's own worship and service. And God is far more zealous for his own reputation than he is for ours. And secondly, men are incompetent judges of these matters because they don't understand all the reasons and causes of God's judgments. You see, in Numbers 4, God gives very strict rules about the ark. The Levites, who were ordained by God to the ministry, were never, never permitted to look inside the ark. When the priest opened it up, the Levites had to leave so that they could not see. If they did, they would die. And in the case of the Levites, they wouldn't have been looking out of morbid curiosity or or irreverent nosiness. And yet God's holiness would still have struck them dead. So how much more in our case were these men, who were neither Levites nor priests, were meddling in divine affairs? The great commentator Matthew Poole writes, There are many secret sins which escape man's observation but are seen by God, before whom many persons may be deeply guilty, whom men esteem innocent and virtuous. And therefore, men should take heed of censuring the judgments of God, of which it is most truly said that they are oft secret, but never unrighteous. I'm going to be quick on the third point because I want to linger on the practical applications. And so I'll call this point reform instead of repentance. In the Middle Ages, it was common knowledge that the monasteries were dens of iniquity, havens of immorality, avarice, and many other vices. And the proposed solution was always the same. The church doesn't need to repent. She just needs to restructure her institutions. The men of Beth Shemesh do the same. They don't acknowledge the greatness of their sin and repent. They just restructure the organization. Take the easy way like the Philistines and ship the ark somewhere else. Move worship over there. And this is a classic move of false professors. False professors pay a lot of lip service to God. But when the rubber meets the road, they are more than happy to bow out. They're afraid of being labeled fanatic or extremist. They want a Christian faith that never causes discomfort. Never mind what God's Word actually says about worship, about the Lord's Day, about reverence for Scripture, about marriage, about the family, about anything. The second the standard of God's Word comes into conflict... With society's cultural norms, false professors are happy to ship the ark off to Kirjat And you see, it wasn't that the men of Kirjat were were intrinsically more holy or better equipped to handle the ark. No thought was even given to that consideration. These false professors were behaving just like the heathen Philistines. God's wrath breaks out in Ashdod, the solution is send the ark to Gath. When the Lord's wrath is kindled against Gath, the solution is, send the ark to Akron. And now, when the Lord's zeal for his own holiness breaks out against the irreverent men of Beth Shemesh, the solution is, the Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. Perhaps you've noticed that they hid the real problem from the men of, of kirjath They pitch it like it's the most normal thing in the world. The ark is back from the Philistines. You guys should come and get it. Like they're working on the, the assumption that the ark should rightfully be in kirjath Jirim. It's pure pride, our pure bait for the pride of kirjath What they don't tell them is, who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? The men of Beth Shemesh were looking for patsies. Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God, and to whom shall it go up from us? False professors are always more comfortable in sin. God's presence isn't welcome because it brings conviction of sin. You remember when Jesus cast demons out of the gathering? The demons entered into the swine, and when they did, swine, which Jews were not supposed to be raising in the first place, the men of the place came out not to rejoice in the spiritual liberty of a man set free from from demon possession, but rather to ask Jesus to leave because His holiness was wrecking their livelihood. The men of Beth Shemesh were blind, inexcusably blind even. They were Israelites, members of the visible church, people who had been around the things of God their whole lives. And so we must ask, what accounts for this blindness? How can people who have been exposed to the glory of God and to the wonders of His gospel grow as blind and callous as the men of Beth Shemesh who utterly disregarded the proper decorum that God's law required? Well, the foundation of such blindness is the natural depravity of the human heart. By nature, our hearts are blind and indisposed to God's truth. Another name for that is original sin. The fallen nature that we inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve. Our sinful nature is a fifth column. It's like an enemy outpost that seeks to undermine the work of God's Spirit. Now, original sin is the foundation, but we need more to explain the phenomenon we're looking at. And that more is that the power of our sinful nature is increased by way of our actual sins. Because habit confirms the sinful inclinations of our nature. The more that the sinful nature is fed, the stronger it grows. Every indulgence of an unclean passion, every repetition of a sinful act strengthens its roots and strikes it deeper into the heart. The conscience which in the beginning may have been tender and easily impressed with the fear of God, by degrees assumes a hardness and callousness against the threatenings of God's law. Each and every day that sin is persisted in renders repentance and return to God more difficult and more unlikely. Scripture is full of warnings to this effect. Today, if you will hear His voice, harden not your hearts." Wherefore, exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. But there is a further degree of this sin, and that is the the habit of sinning carried so far that, that, that God, in His righteous judgment for the abuse of His mercy, abandons the sinner to his own folly without any of what the Bible calls the strivings of the Holy Spirit. At this stage, everything that God has ordained to recover sinners no longer makes any impressions on him. Not only does he not love God, uh, truth, or holiness, he regards them with aversion and hatred. All the tendencies of his soul are bent and molded to his sinful indulgences and enjoyments. He has been given over by God's just judgment to the power of the temptations that he loves and pursues with such passion. Now, none of us can peer into another man's heart and know whether or not he is in such a case. But the Bible is very clear that there are men in such a case. Scripture tells us that there are sinners whose state is already fixed in the secret decree of heaven. Men who are sealed under judicial hardness, the consequence of their own presumptuous folly and wickedness. Now, where do we find evidence that there are such judgments inflicted upon sinners? Well, this is something that we can only learn from the Word of God, because we cannot peer into our hearts and destinies of our fellow men. But Scripture contains many such warnings, warnings that should make every daring sinner tremble. For this cause, we read earlier, God shall send them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they may all be condemned who had pleasure in unrighteousness. Oh, that thou hadst known the things that belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thy eyes. Because when I called, ye refused. I stretched out my hand, and no man regarded. But ye have set at naught all my counsel, and would none of my reproof. I also... Will laugh at your calamities. I will mock when your fear cometh. They shall seek me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but shall not find me. For that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Now, are there particular sins which God has determined always and uniformly to punish with this hardness and blindness? Well, none that we are aware of. These are the secrets of the Almighty. All we can do is acquiesce in the words of the Apostle Paul. He hath mercy on whom he will have mercy. And whom he will, he hardeneth. But having said that, we must acknowledge that there are such dangerous sins. The first of them is the neglect of the means of grace. See, only the grace of God can bring a sinner to repentance. You can only reasonably expect it where He has promised it. But where has God promised it? If faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, then we have great reason to fear for those who habitually and regularly neglect public worship on the Lord's Day. How can they expect to enter the temple of God in heaven when they habitually refuse to enter His house here on earth? Do you know when churches are usually the fullest? You guessed it. Usually at funerals. And this is true everywhere. Now, it's no sin to honor the memory of our godly loved ones who die in the faith. But surely there's something way out of kilter. If more people gather for a saint who has died than gather for the Lord of life in whose house they are meeting. Now ask yourself this question. Does ignorance create a secure conscience? Doesn't it rather carry the untaught and uncorrected sinner to the impulses of his own lusts? Yes, yes, there are thieves on the cross. But is that example one on which it is wise to risk your soul? God could miraculously grow a crop of wheat where no farmer has worked the soil. But is that what he's taught us to expect? Isn't the the law of providence, he becomes poor that works with a slack hand? God can miraculously halt the career of a Saul of Tarsus, but that is not his usual way. God's usual way is that they who do not like to retain God in their knowledge, he gives over to a reprobate mind. Now secondly, if neglect of the institutions that Christ has appointed in His church has such dangerous consequences, then we have greater reason to fear the fatal effects of their abuse. It is a sad and observable fact that abuse of the means of grace or habitually attending on them without regard to their purpose is as common As their neglect. How many are there who who rest in the means alone. As if by regular attendance on these things. They had fulfilled all that God requires. They trust in a form of godliness without the power. They substitute rites and rituals for true holiness. And the Bible itself testifies to this sad reality. In Matthew 28. The risen Christ appears to his followers. And we read. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Witnessing the miracle of the resurrected Lord didn't guarantee the possession of saving faith among the members of Christ's visible church. These people worshiped, the text says, but not in faith. For the text says that they doubted, and doubt is the opposite of faith. This was pure external religion. Nothing on earth is more powerful in producing coldness, hardness of heart, and indifference to the great objects of the Christian faith than mechanical, unfeeling attendance at the ordinances of God's house. And the danger stems from the fact that we pay less attention to the things that we do from habit. And this is why I believe it is important... To be frequently reminded of the meaning of what we do. For instance, why do I use more elevated language in the pulpit than I do in casual conversation? Why do I use King James verbiage in my pulpit prayers? Why do we sing from the hymnal and the psalms accompanied by an organ instead of a rock band? Why do I wear the pulpit robe instead of cargo shorts? Well, these things are intended to remind us that this is no ordinary gathering. We're not just hanging out, having a good time. We're worshiping the sovereign creator, ruler, and judge of the universe. So we approach His presence with reverence and decorum. Jesus is not just some guy. He is the King of kings. Now, the sacred things that we do in church, which I attempt to infuse with reverence. If they can be done in an unthinking, mechanical, irreverent habit, and they can, how much more if they're done in a formless contemporary cut-offs and t-shirts manner? But on the other hand, everything that is done with fervor and gravity strengthens the warmth and force of those tendencies of the heart from which they spring. By every act. And this is verified in the experience of all men. Superficial worshipers come to the Lord's house with His people, but they are often completely unaware of the significance and value of anything that is said or done in the holy acts of worship. Whereas the truly devout who love God's habitation, the place where His honor dwelleth, they love His service the more by every approach they make. Into his presence. And they would feel. The great pain at being deprived. Of this precious privilege. Thirdly. Resisting and stifling conviction is a most dangerous means of hardening the conscience and rendering it callous to any future exposure to the Word of God. It's not uncommon to to see a sinner under the influence of the preaching of the gospel awakened to a temporary concern for his soul. And I'm sad to say that that word temporary is the key word. The the rebukes of his conscience, the gravity of spiritual matters, the life and death nature of divine things strike him as gloomy and hound him with fear and guilt. And so, he strives by any means necessary to rid himself of this gloomy mindset, this gloomy mood, until he finally recovers his old worry-free liberty and sinning. And finally, what I believe we see in our text is the habitual... Indulgence of sins against the light of nature and the revealed will of God. These men knew that God had given strict rules about how the Ark of the Covenant was to be treated. This was no plaything. God had openly threatened death, even to the Levites, if they failed to approach His Ark with proper decorum and reverence. Now, the Philistines were sinning against the light of nature. 1 Samuel 5 and 6 repeatedly tell us that the Philistines knew that Jehovah was real. They had enough knowledge to be guilty, but not enough to be saved. And so they eventually returned the ark to Israel. But these men of Beth Shemesh, they were not sinning merely against the light of nature. They were sinning against the revealed will of God. And there is no sin more effective in hardening a sinner's conscience. The palms of many of your hands are hard and calloused from a lot of honorable hard work. But callousness of soul is not honorable. If we have provided songs of praise, prayers of confession and adoration, reading and exposition of God's word and, and administration of the sacraments, that's about all we can do for you. If you neglect these things by regular and habitual absence from God's house on the Lord's day, if you abuse these things by unthinking and unfeeling participation in them, or openly disregard them in favor of your darling sins, you will give yourself a calloused soul that is beyond feeling. And this will be God's judgment as fair and as reasonable as when he killed the men of Beth Shemesh. For their irreverent treatment of his holy ark. Let us pray.